Today's reading is from the first chapter of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. For the day of the Lord is near upon all of the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survival for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. This is God's word. Thanks, Erica. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Let me reiterate uh, that today is a big day uh, for a number of reasons for our church, and so we're just excited and want to express that publicly. Excited about the preview service for the church plant this evening at 5 o'clock. Excited uh, because you, and grateful, let me say, uh, as a a pastor of this church, that you are so willing uh, to heed uh, instruction, thank you that there are, no, there are literally no cars parked right out here, if anybody noticed. So all of you parked way down there and walked as we asked you to. We thank you for that. Uh, we're trying to make as much space and as much room uh, for as many people as we can. And so hopefully you found it easier to find a place to sit this morning. Uh, that's due to the fact that it's a sad day in some ways too because some of our number uh, starting in two weeks will not be worshiping with us any longer because the mission has called them somewhere else. And that's a good thing. But it's a sad thing. And so we're full of, uh, full of emotion and uh, joy this morning as we, as we celebrate this. So come back tonight and celebrate with, the, with these guys as they get going. And next week, I just want to set the stage. We're hoping that uh, if you were here uh, with East, at, at Easter with us, there were people sitting on the stairwells in the back and people in the foyer. We're hoping the next week's going to be much like that. We're going to put extra seating in here and try to get everybody in. And we really are looking forward to an exciting time together. So come next week and celebrate with us. Uh, we're going to really, really have a good time, okay? This morning, we're continuing in a series that we are taking the time this fall to, to go through in the Minor Prophets, a part of the, script, the, the scriptures that most people and even most Christians are unfamiliar with. And the purpose of the Minor Prophets, we've been saying, <clears throat> all of which surround uh, the, 
the tragedy of exile for Israel in the north and Judah in the south, what the prophets are trying to do is to produce a theology that can endure through suffering. And so the way I'd like to say it this morning, to kind of echo what we've already said, is that Christians, and you'll notice there in your outline, in the introduction part, Christians live their lives from the top down, not the bottom up. So for us, our perception of reality, our posture towards life, our, our morality, our definitions, are not social constructs. They all begin with who God is. We begin with God, and then we come down into life, top down, not bottom up. And so what we're interested in here in going through these little-known books is a theology that will help us endure through the hardship that is an inevitable part of life. And this morning, in the prophecy of Obadiah, which I'm assuming very few of us have maybe even read, we're going to meditate on the theme of this book, which is God's vengeance. Okay, and so this morning we're talking about, Jeff was funny, he said, man, what a great sermon to start. Welcome to our new church, let's talk about God's vengeance. And yet, there's some real profitable things here for us this morning. And I think, uh, ultimately, you're going to see that even the message of God's vengeance is a gospel for his people. So here's what we want to talk about this morning. Three things. We want to first look at how we sin against one another. Because there's a warning here in the warning given to Edom about the way that you and I can also sin against one another. So first, there's a warning about how we sin against one another. Secondly, there's a warning, a second warning about how we sinfully respond to being sinned against. And then third, we want to see the preventative for both of those, which is the message of this book, God's vengeance. Okay, so how we sin against one another. Secondly, how we often sinfully respond to being sinned against. And then we want to land on the preventative for both of those, which is God's vengeance. Okay, so that's what we're going to do, those three points this morning. So let's walk through this together. First, the prophecy of Obadiah contains a warning about how we might sin against one another. And the historical context of the book carries the lesson, okay? So notice at the very beginning, this is a prophecy against Edom, the nation of Edom. Verse 1, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Edom was a close neighbor to Israel geographically, to the southeast, and there was constant political tension and strain between these two nations. But the hostility was rooted in history because Israel and Edom had a history with one another. Abraham if you remember him, the patriarch of the, of the nation of Israel, had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, and if you look at verse 18, you'll see both their names listed there, Jacob and Esau. Actually, Esau the oldest and then Jacob. Jacob's descendants became the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. The blessing of God resided with them. Esau, the older, who should have been the one who received the blessing, his descendants became the nation of Eden. So there's Israel and Edom, cousin nations, brother nations, however you want to put that. And if you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, you know that it was a classic case of sibling rivalry, but in the reverse of how it usually goes, Esau, the oldest, was his father's favorite, Jacob, the younger, his mother's favorite, all of this unhealthy dynamic intention in the family, but in an act of deception, Jacob stole Esau's birthright and blessing from him. Uh, But this was God's plan all along, we find out as we read those stories. And God had chosen Jacob, not Esau. And so you even find this phrase repeated over and over again in the scriptures. God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, Esau 
I hated. So Jacob got the blessing. He was the one chosen by God. Esau uh, was the one who was left out. Jacob, everything he touched was successful. And so what happens over the centuries, as you might imagine, is this rivalry is carried over and intensified throughout the generations among these two groups of people. And whereas Esau and Jacob, if you remember the stories in Genesis, were eventually reconciled, Israel and Eden continued to war against one another. But like the stories of Jacob and Esau, Israel always seemed to have the upper hand. They had the blessing. Israel flourished and Edom languished until, until, the Babylonians showed up and carried the Israelites off into exile. And then finally, finally Edom saw its chance. And the historians tell us that what's happened that's occasioned this whole thing is uh, Edom has taken advantage of Israel's weakness during the time of their exile. They've begun to raid and plunder the people remaining in Israel that have not been carried off. Uh, some of them obviously uh, ran to this neighboring country as refugees, but instead of receiving them and housing them, Edom has begun to turn them over to the Babylonians to be carted off or to be killed. They took even parts of the promised land for their own. You might say they kicked Israel while they were down. And Obadiah's prophecy is directed at Edom for that, for what they've done in this crisis moment in his people's life. Now, there's a warning for us about how we might sin against one another. And, it, and it, it may not be right there on the surface of your reading of this text, but it definitely is in all of those details I've already outlined. And it's the sin of envy. Envy is part of the human story all the way back to Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. And as was the case there, it is often what is behind our broken relationships, our hurt feelings, and even international conflict and war. But what is the sin of envy? And there's a really helpful description in this book, in verses 11 through 13. It really is marvelous in how well it highlights exactly what was going on in the hearts of the people uh, involved in these events. If you look there in verse 11, the Lord says, On the day that you stood aloof, aloof, excuse me, the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, Israel's wealth, and foreigners entered his gates. You cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them, one of the enemies. In verse 12, he says, But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. And do not boast in the day of their distress. And so Edom was gloating over Israel's misfortune. They were rejoicing at their ruin. They were boasting in their distress. And that, that is envy. Aristotle defined envy as pain caused by the good fortune of others. Or, if you want to flip it around, envy is joy caused by the misfortune of others. Pain caused by the good fortune or joy caused by the misfortune of others. Envy is rejoicing when others weep and weeping when others rejoice. It is not just jealousy. It is jealousy and discontentment that has soured and become hostile. Envy is looking at somebody else's success and hating it because it didn't happen to you. And so you begin to secretly wish and maybe even plan for their downfall. And we know to love somebody means that you're for them. You wish and hope for their success and flourishing. You're happy for them when things go well. 
But envy is the opposite. Envy is posturing yourself, even if it's in your own mind and feelings, as an enemy to the person who has the thing that you want so badly, so that you begin to gloat in their misfortune, rejoice in their ruin, and boast in their distress. And the root of envy is wounded pride. Edom's proud. I mean, this is what the Lord chastises him about back in verses 3 and 4. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Do you see that? You who live in the clefts of the rocks in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like aloft like the eagle, though, you, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I'll bring you down, the Lord says. And you caught it when Erica read it, the way she read it. It was perfect. Uh, they, um, the problem with Edom is their pride. And that's our problem too. We have too high an opinion of ourselves. We, like them, imagine ourselves like an eagle soaring through the sky, nesting among the stars from, a pla- from the place of our preeminence, looking down on everyone else with self-satisfaction. But then, someone outshines us. Or a coworker gets the promotion that we were in line for. Things start to go bad for me and in my, in my life. And I look around and they seem to be going so well for everybody else. And my pride takes a hit. Now remember what C.S. Lewis said. He said pride is necessarily competitive. He said we sinfully get no pleasure out of having something. But <laughs> where the pleasure comes from is out of having more of it than the next person. And so when it becomes obvious that someone else has won and I've lost, the result too often is envy. We're all sore losers. Now Israel had experienced abundance and flourishing at God's hand. Edom had gotten all the leftovers, much like Jacob and Esau. And this produced jealousy and discontent that soured into hostility that was expanded over generation after generation. Now, the same thing happens to us, too. The way you know if if this has happened to you is if you do to others what Edom did to Israel here. Look first at verse 11. On the day of your... uh, Excuse me, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them, the Lord says. This is the Babylonian invasion. Jerusalem is being destroyed. Women and children are literally being raped and murdered. And what is Edom doing? What's the Lord say there, verse 11? What are they doing? They're standing aloof. In other words, they don't come to the rescue as they should. They don't offer help to their neighbors and to their their brothers and cousins as they should. Instead, they smugly look on, saying beneath their breath, something like, that's so sad. But you know, they had it coming. I mean, envy keeps you aloof from people's pain. You provide commentary, but not help. And this shows the great evil of envy in the heart. It shuts the heart down. It turns off. Envy turns off the compassion valve of the heart. So that you can look on other people's pain and feel nothing because because their downfall helps your pride recover just a little bit. It feels good to watch others lose. Right? If the Seminoles, if they would have lost yesterday, it would have been a really bad day because the Gators weren't playing. Because if the Seminoles lose on a Saturday... It's a bad day unless the Gators play later in the day and they lose. Because if they lose, it makes everything else okay. Do you see? Their loss feels like a win. 
right? If you want a picture of envy, if you want a picture of envy, Seminole fans' hatred of Tim Tebow. Who can hate Tim Tebow? But I do, for some strange reason. (laughs) Right? I mean, I'm broken. What can I see? I can't even talk because I was I was at the game last week and yelling so loud, and I still don't have my voice. And that's just a picture. If my enemy loses, it feels like a win. And so, so envy makes us dispassionate, makes us stoic toward the pain and the loss of others' experience. It causes us to root against one another. But it's far more insidious than that. It's not just emotional aloofness. It's really violence. Look at verse ten. Because of the violence. The Lord says, because of the violence you've done to your brother. Edom for centuries had been at war with Israel because envy, envy declares war against the other person's happiness. Immanuel Kant's definition of envy is being intent on the destruction of the happiness of others. Not openly secretly, and sometimes even unconsciously. Eden has been waiting for the chance to give it to the Israelites, and when the moment came, they took it. Now, this is no different than holding on to a grudge, and then when the conversation among friends innocently turns to the person that you're angry at, you pounce. What's been lurking in the shadows, but is now out in the open for everybody to see is hostility. There's violence and envy. You're not just aloof from other people's pain, you're wishing for it. You're preparing for it. You're on the lookout for it. And then when it happens, you gloat. You celebrate. You join in on the fun. Now I hope, as I describe this to you, you can feel the evil of it. It's gross. It is gross. And it destroys relationships. And it turns friends into rivals. Worse, it's a cancer of the soul. And we need God to deliver us from it. So if you want just one snapshot, one more snapshot of just how enslaved to envy we are, are, consider why when I check out at Publix do I have to stare at magazine after magazine about how celebrities' lives are falling apart. The world of tabloid magazines and increasingly the news media in general has one central job to satisfy our envy by displaying at every opportunity the people we envy, the rich, the famous, the beautiful, and so forth, to display them in one or another stage of defeat. Dorothy Sayers said, at best, envy is a climber and a snob. At worst, it is a destroyer. Rather than having anybody happier than itself, it would see us all miserable together. (laughs) That is the great evil of envy. And the power of some sins, the power of some sins is the pleasure, the promise of pleasure that it produces. But envy, envy has no promise. Envy makes you miserable all the time, and yet we keep doing it. We can't help ourselves, and that, I think, shows its particular malevolence. But there's a second thing. Not only are we warned about how we can sin against one another through the sin of envy, it's not explicit in Obadiah, but it's implied, and so I think we have to deal with it. And that is, we're also warned about how we might react sinfully to being sinned against. If envy leads us to sin against one another in all kinds of ways, there's a second thing we have to deal with here, and that's how we can sinfully react to being sinned against. So how should Israel respond? That's the question. In other words, Edom, their neighbors and their brothers are now coming against them. How should they respond? How would you respond if in your greatest hour of need, the people in your life who should be there to help swoop in, but not with help, but with a sucker punch? 
If, because of envy, we have an incredible capacity to sin against people, even people we might be striving to love well, we should expect that we're going to have to deal with this in our dealings with one another. And that means we better be ready to meet with envy, with forgiveness and healing grace. And that's Paul's subject in Romans 12, the call to worship passage that Jonathan read at the beginning of our of our uh, service. When I started meditating on Obadiah, I immediately thought of Romans 12. Listen to the words there again. Repay, repay no one evil for evil, but if possible, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink and so forth. The Apostle Paul refers to a natural and sinful response to being sinned against. Then he also gives us what I'll call a gospel response. So the natural and sinful response to being sinned against is what he warns of. Vengeance. Payback. Eye for an eye. Tooth for tooth, right? You hurt me, so now I'm going to hurt you. Because when you're hurting, when you're hurting, the, when you're hurting, the only thing that feels like it would make it okay is if you can make the other person hurt even worse than you're hurting. There's an emotional lift in revenge. I mean, victimization makes most people self-righteous, and self-righteousness feels good. Such is our brokenness. To feel morally superior to the one who has sinned against you is an effective strategy to regain what they've taken from you, to regain control of your life. And that's why forgiveness is so hard, because if I forgive, I have to give up my sense of moral superiority. That's the obstacle to forgiveness. I have to remain powerless. Revenge, revenge is a whole lot more fun. And the best illustration that I know for this is Alexander Dumas's Count of Monte Cristo. If you've read the story, if you the, really there was a movie put out years ago that was actually really, really good, I think. Edmond Dantes, who's the lead character, is the object of his best friend's envy. This friend secretly loves his fiancée and is jealous of his success and business prospects, and so he falsely accuses Dantes of being a supporter of Napoleon's attempt to regain the throne in France after his exile. And there are false accusations in a conspiracy that lands Edmund Dantes in prison, and his friend, who put him there, conveniently takes over his life. He marries his fiancée and moves forward. So no doubt Dantes has been terribly sinned against. He's been destroyed by the envy and the ambition of the circle of people responsible for his demise, And while in prison, he begins to plot his revenge for 14 years in the Chateau d'If. He dreams of nothing but vengeance. And when he meets a fellow prisoner who on his deathbed gives him the location of an immense buried treasure on the island of Monte Cristo, Dantes begins to meticulously plot to bring his enemies down. He escapes. He finds the treasure. He returns to Paris as the Count of Monte Cristo and he begins to systematically destroy all those responsible for his downfall. And the great tragedy of repaying evil with evil, the lesson of Dumas' masterpiece, is of course that when you do that, all that effectively happens is the evil that has been done to you gets perpetuated and amplified. Person who repays evil with evil, like the Count of Monte Cristo, is overcome by it. The evil that has been done to him has entered into his soul and has transformed him into its likeness. And he's been consumed. He's doing to his enemy the very thing that has been done to him. This is Dumas' moral lesson revenge is not the answer. It twists and mars your soul. And at the end of the day, the saddest part is there's no satisfaction. It doesn't bring you any peace, 
It doesn't give you any rest. So the Apostle Paul says, Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the gospel response. Overcome evil with good. Refuse to provide a home for it in your heart. Don't repay evil with evil. Extinguish evil with patient faith. Paul's words are, brothers, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to God. Stop playing God, Paul says. That's what revenge is. Revenge is taking God's place on the bench of the universe and making ourselves judge and jury. Leave it to God, he says. Stop trying to do God's job for him. That doesn't minimize the sin that's been done to you. It means you realize that there is a vertical solution to every horizontal problem in your life. And that's where I want to end the sermon. By asking this question, what do we learn about God and Obadiah that is the preventative for both of the problems we've talked about so far? Okay, so let me take a step back and diagnose each of these things just a little more deeply. You see, the sin of envy, which leads us to sin against one another, and the way we sinfully respond to being sinned against, both stem from the same source. It's fascinating. Joseph Epstein, who's a writer and a columnist in New York City, in a series of lectures he produced for the New York Public Library on the topic of envy, keeps going back to the issue of justice. I read, he put out a little book, and I read the whole thing this week. He, he says that envy is a response to a perceived injustice. He contends at the bottom of all envy is the question about injustice in the way the world works. It's not fair. Why them? Why not me? Injustice. So he says, uh, rather brilliantly, I think, he says, you see something, you want it, you feel it only sensible and right that it belonged to you and not the other person who has it. And once the injustice of the other person having it is established, and this doesn't usually take too long, his unworthiness must be emphasized, at least in your own mind. Your own greater worthiness goes quite without saying. His loathsomeness does not. It may be said over and over to yourself. Whatever the object of inordinate desire, the world seems out of joint so long as he has it and you do not. The world seems out of joint as long as this person has the thing that you think you need. So there's injustice. But you see, repaying evil with evil instead of forgiving and loving those who sin against us stems from the same theological crisis. If I forgive... If I forgive, what happens to justice? Who's going to make sure that person pays? I mean, Edmund Dantes was the innocent victim of a terrible injustice, and it brought him in the Chateau d'If to the point of suicide until, until he began to concoct a strategy for justice. His desire for revenge was a sinful, impure, bent desire for justice. Have you noticed families of murder victims often talk about closure? When the killer is finally convicted, which of course means that before there was something missing, they were being tortured. What was it? What was it that was torturing them? What was it that was missing that was so hard to deal with? Justice. They needed justice. The world was out of joint, but the conviction or the execution maybe even of the one who took from them their loved one served to bring things back into alignment because without justice, they couldn't move on. And so the crisis in both of these problems we're dealing with here, is the threat of injustice. The enemy of God's people are triumphing. Where's God? Where's justice? The wicked are winning and the righteous are losing. What happened to justice? He hurt me. Who's going to make sure he pays? And the promises of Obadiah is just this, that God will bring justice. Look at his words down in 15 and 16. 
For the day of the Lord is upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Behold, your deeds shall return on your own head. And then to Edom, he says, verses 2, 3, and 4, Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. Though you soar aloft like the eagle from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The message, God's going to deal with Edom. That's why Obadiah wrote, Where the world seems out of joint, it is due for a massive correction. And that really is what vengeance is. It's a correction back towards justice. And the correction will happen, we're told, on the great day of the Lord. You see that reference again? The day of the Lord is upon all the nations, verse 15. The day of the Lord, the day of God's vengeance, the day when he will punish the wicked for their sins and reward the righteous for their faithfulness and there will finally be justice. No sins will go overlooked. No good deeds will go unnoticed. God is going to deal with all the forces of evil in the world. He will bring them to judgment. Listen, the absolute craziness and moral anarchy in our culture, the rampant godliness, godlessness, the vitriol towards Christianity and the church, God is going to deal with it. Vengeance is mine, he says. And that's good news for God's people. That's gospel. But see, I can anticipate an objection. And the objection would be something like this. Maybe not among southern, genteel, leaning towards Republican type people. But others. The objection of some would be, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't what you're talking about turn people into radicals? I mean, isn't this the problem with the militants in Iraq and Syria who see themselves as the sword of God's justice on the earth? Them and God against the world full of infidels. And so if you don't believe exactly the way they do, if you're not on the right team, you deserve to be beheaded. See, if we believed this, wouldn't the same thing happen to us too? That's the objection. And I would want to say to you, unfortunately, it too often... The Christianity that passes for Christianity in our culture too often does that very thing. Not in the sense that you see Christians taking up swords and cutting people's heads off, but in much more subtle forms of self-righteousness and hatred and violence. We use words most often, not swords. It creeps in. We're the good guys, squaring off against the bad guys, and God is on our team And when you believe that, it creates an edge to your life that is sometimes as sharp as the swords of Isis. But the truth of what we would learn here in this book this morning is just this, that God's vengeance doesn't make us agents of vengeance. Quite the opposite. The view of God's vengeance here for his people makes us rather agents of mercy. See, it's not enough to understand God's vengeance in a general sense. You have to apply it personally. It has to be you in God's vengeance, me in God's vengeance, not them in God's vengeance, right? Them in God's vengeance. Oh, vengeance is coming after them. No, it's I've got to direct it personally at me. And here's what I mean. I am guilty of the sin of envy. Unfortunately for me, I'm also guilty of sinfully responding to be sinned against. Just so you know, I'm not alone. I believe all of you are too. Okay? And I love that you can laugh at that, but I mean it. And so, if God is coming in vengeance against sin on the great day of the Lord, then that means that he's coming against my sins and your sins too. And the message of Christianity is not that Christians are the good people and everybody else is the bad people. We're on God's team and it's us 
in him against the rest of the world. Listen to Romans 5.10. For while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God. Now, while we were his enemies, what does that mean? Go back to Obadiah again one more time with me in verses 15 and down verse 17. The Lord says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Not upon, not upon, it does not say the day of the Lord is near upon Edom and Moab and everybody but Israel. No, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Verse 17, and Erica caught it when she read it. It was beautiful. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And here's the message. God's vengeance is coming down against the whole world. No one's exempt. But then in a miraculous intervention of grace, we're told there are going to be some who narrowly escape, and that's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that the sort of vengeance that should come down on our neck has come down on Jesus instead. The great day of the Lord has come, but not against us. As he, the Lord Jesus, hung upon the cross for our sins, the sky went dark, the earth shook, The day of the Lord came down and he was punished in our place and the sword of God's justice was thrust into his side so that now it could be sheathed against you and I. That's your gospel, Christian. That's your gospel. I deserve vengeance, but instead I got mercy. I escaped by God's grace. And I need to be your pastor and tell you that destroys any sense of self-righteousness that we might try to muster. And it should replace it with compassion. Christianity produces a completely different response to God's vengeance than any other religious system. It turns us into agents of mercy, not agents of vengeance. So let's go back to the two things we talked about and then we're done at the very beginning. Let me just speak back into each of those just for 30 seconds each. Now where you find sin... The sin of envy in your life. Where there's envy, okay? And I caught you, or the scripture caught you, and you, oh man, you can feel that. If you go deep enough into those things, you'll hear this question echoing at the bottom of your heart. Why them and not me? It's not fair. Why them? Why not me? If you go a little deeper, if you keep going beyond that question, here's the question that you'll hear. God, why don't you love me? Because if you loved me, you would give me the things that I want. Somebody else wouldn't have them. God, why don't you love me? See, all of envy is unbelief. It's fueled by a sense of injustice. God doesn't play fair. God has favorites. God's out to get me. He doesn't love me. But the gospel silences all of these accusations by making clear that, the, that hear me, what orders the whole of your life, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, what orders the whole of your life is not injustice, it's love. And so if you have something that that you think you need that you see somebody else enjoying, it's love that's done that. God is loving you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That is maybe the hardest command in the whole Bible. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Rejoice with those who rejoice because though it may not be the occasion for your joy at the moment, here's what you have to believe. There is joy being prepared for you by your Heavenly Father. Your day will come. It will be your time to celebrate, and that gives you the freedom to celebrate with the person who's celebrating today. The gospel is the solution to envy. But where you might be struggling to not sinfully respond to being sinned against, remember, 
Remember, when you were his enemy, Christ died loving you. It's not wrong to want justice when you see wrong or when somebody wrongs you. Do you hear? It's not wrong to want justice. It's healthy and appropriate. It's woven into the fabric of the creation and in our humanity. It's not wrong to want justice when you see wrong or when you, someone wrongs you. It's wrong to think that it's your justice that's the solution. And what the scripture would warn us against is it's not... It is not your prerogative to to take God's place on the bench of the universe. Stop thinking so highly of yourself and your justice. God will have his vengeance. Let God be God. Don't forget. Don't forget that you were once in line for justice too, but instead of justice you got mercy. And so if you want to know, if you want to know the overwhelming feature of a person who's come face to face with the gospel truths contained in the scripture, and even the truth of this book, Obadiah, the the threat of God's vengeance fulfilled in the death of Jesus for us. A Christian is a person who's been so radically softened and changed by the gospel of grace that that person, that Christian, doesn't go through life calling vengeance, vengeance, justice, justice. A Christian, a person whose heart's been changed and softened by the gospel, is a person who goes through life crying, oh Lord, mercy, mercy. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on them. Father, mercy. We cry out for mercy. That's the heart of a person. And the heart of a people. That can change a city. And so let's pray that God would do just that in us. Can we? Let's pray. Father, we come and we confess that we, uh, we are caught. We are caught in this book and the, the warning that you give us of the, the, the threat of the sin of envy and the, the warning that you give us of the way that we might sinfully respond to being sinned against. Father, we are enslaved to these things in our lives and we so desperately need you to come and to, uh, to rescue us and to deliver us from our slavery to sin. And so we cry out, Father, open our eyes that we might see the glorious truth of your gospel, your love for us even when we were your enemies. And may it soften our hearts so that we would put down our signs that we would carry around Um, crying out for vengeance and for justice, and we would instead fall to our knees as the tax collector in the story that Jesus told and and fall on the ground and beat our breasts, not even daring to look up to heaven and saying, oh God, have mercy. Have mercy on us, the sinners that we may be, and change us into people who go through their lives as agents of mercy and compassion. Not, Not... Not throwing away the idea of justice, but knowing that it's in your hands. And to us, you've given a different mission. And so we pray, Father, you give us grace, even now in these moments as we sing, to capture the theology of this book in our lives and to live from the top down in a way that would honor and glorify you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're here and your faith is not in the Lord Jesus Christ, cry out for mercy and come to him. Because he is a faithful, merciful God. Uh, And he will receive you if you turn away from your sins and come to him. But if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're here and you're a Christian, then would you... Uh, would you pay attention to these words as I, as I speak them over you, this promise of this benediction that the Father now, because of the work of Christ, is disposed to do good and to bless and to, and to, um, and to work for the sake of those who come to him and say mercy. Would you keep an eye on his mercy and allow it to change your heart, soften you into a person who goes about your life as an agent of mercy, leaving vengeance to the Lord, repaying evil not with evil, but overcoming evil uh, with good. 
blessing and, and loving and caring for even those who might be your enemies. That is, that is a, a life that has been uh, supercharged with gospel power. And the source of it is the promise that, that all that God makes uh, in these words here at the end of our service in the benediction. And so receive it uh, in your hearts. Feed on it in your hearts by faith. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.